Truth Espresso, episode 44. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Ah, interest. Something that we love to see on those statements of our savings accounts, earning money over time with our money sitting in the bank, while at the same time, something that we just can't stand to pay. It's painful as we are paying our mortgage and paying a loan. Hi, my name is Daniel Minnick and welcome to Truth Espresso. I hope you are having a wonderful day as we go through these uncertain times with coronavirus and lockdowns as we try to figure out together what really should be done about this. How long should it last? Has the government overstepped its bounds? Or what kind of trade-offs do we have for our own security and preventing the deaths of people and is the government shutting down the economy something that's worth it and i will leave the answer to that for possibly a future episode but for now as we are continuing our series on basic economics from the bible from a christian perspective we get to the topic of interest so the title of this episode is interest God's money at the right time. So what is interest anyway? I mean, why do we either earn it in a savings account or do we have to pay it when making mortgage payments? I mean, some of this, doesn't it kind of make sense that money over time uh, commands more money? I don't know. Well, let's get into that. So, if we have to come up with a definition of interest, well, basically, interest is a recurring rent payment on a sum of money. So, let's think about a comparison here with renting an apartment. You know, if some of you might be making mortgage payments on a house, that's also apropos for understanding interest. But let's first start with the analogy of renting an apartment or a house. So, when you rent an apartment or rent a house, you pay money every month for the privilege of borrowing and using that place that someone else owns. So, remember that Just because you're paying rent on your apartment, you don't actually own that piece of property. The same with your renting a house. You are paying for the privilege of living there. You're paying for the privilege of being able to use it for your own needs. But someone else owns it. And that payment, that recurring payment, is a just payment for the privilege of borrowing someone else's property. And now let's think of other types of rentals. You can rent a tool such as an industrial strength aerator from Home Depot or Lowe's for your lawn. You're you're not buying the thing. You pay less than you would if you were to buy it and obtain ownership of that industrial strength aerator for your lawn but if you don't really need to own your own aerator you just want to use it for an hour or so then you pay this smaller amount of money for the privilege of using that tool that is owned by home depot or lowe's Of course, you can also rent a hotel room. Now, usually we don't use the word rent when it comes to a hotel room. We just talk about paying the 
$90 or so to stay the night at a hotel room, and that payment goes not only for the privilege of using the room, but also to pay for some accommodations or maid service and so on. Spending a night in a hotel room, if it's just one night, that is more expensive for that night than you would renting a house or an apartment for a month. The the per night cost is significantly higher, but there's, of course, a reason for that, and that reason is time. And so, thinking about this comparison, interest is a lot like rent. But why would interest be a lot like rent? I mean, we're talking about money on top of money. Well, think about if you're renting an apartment and say that that apartment is worth $50,000. Now that, you know, that would be a tiny apartment in uh, today's economy, but like just for the sake of example, think about an apartment, renting an apartment that is worth $50,000 on the market. Now, your rent payment for the privilege of using that property, that apartment owned by someone else, would be similar to you borrowing the use of $50,000 itself to use for whatever you might want. You can use it to start a business or, you know, even if you were to borrow that money and somehow splurge it on some serious luxurious vacations and you know, make yourself go bankrupt. The whole the point is that if you were to take fifty thousand dollars and borrow it, what you're using is someone else's property. And so just like an apartment that once you are done using it, the pr- having the privilege of using it, you relinquish your use of that back to the owner and what the owner has used, what the owner has obtained is money from you for the privilege of using that property. So think, if that owner wanted to use that apartment, then there is a disadvantage for the owner. If the owner is letting you have the privilege of renting that apartment, but the price of allowing someone else to use property that you own becomes the rent money. Otherwise, there would be no advantage to letting someone stay there for free and accommodating the expenses there for free and repairs for free uh, unless you're a close family member or someone that the rent that the landlord intends to help out of the goodness of his or her heart you know there are people who do that but otherwise for a complete stranger who is unfamiliar with the renter or with the apartment owner what makes letting you have the privilege of using that worth something to the landlord is to have you pay money for the privilege of that and pay a recurring payment over time in a contract or month to month. And so comparing interest on money to rent can make a lot of sense. So if you're renting an apartment worth $50,000, you pay each month a sum of money for the privilege of that. The same with renting a tool. And so for that $50,000 example, you could also get a loan for $50,000. And that $50,000 does not become your assets. It is something that belongs to the lender. And so if you are to keep it and to use it, the privilege of having that money and being able to use it for a certain period of time is interest. And so just like renting an apartment, paying recurring money, you pay recurring money for the privilege of using money. There's no reason to treat money, a sum of money, differently with different rules and interfering with the market, the way the market functions, than using property like an apartment or a tool. So I hope you understand the comparison there, the picture there, and to understand why interest on money works. 
It doesn't matter if it's a sum of money or if it is a piece of real estate. Recurring payments, such as a small sum of money, a relatively small sum of money, is the cost of renting something or the privilege of borrowing something over time. And so, interest on money is actually a price in the market. So, interest being a lot like rent is the price of money over time. Now, I've been reading some books and some articles on economics, and recently I have encountered works videos and articles by a Dr. Sean Rittenor, who has a PhD. Dr. Sean Rittenor is a professor of economics at Grove City College. He has also served as an economist for the United States Bureau of Labor and Statistics. He has a BA, a Bachelor of Arts in Economics, from Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa, and a PhD in Economics from Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama. He is also a member of the faculty of the organization, the Foundation for Economic Education. And I have been reading his book with delight called Foundations of Economics, The Christian View. And I have the Kindle version of that. And I've been reading his chapter about interest. And Dr. Rittenor makes some pretty astute points and some observations to explain the function of interest on money in the economy. And so I will read uh, two sections from his book on chapter 8, entitled Interest and Profit. Dr. Rittner says, quote, all production takes time. Oh, really? <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Now, continue, quote, to engage in production, people must sacrifice present goods in order to obtain the use of land, labor, and capital goods, which are used to produce a good which can be sold in the future. All production, then, involves exchanging present goods for future goods. And, as an aside, that sounds a lot like Say's Law, which I'd like to get into possibly next episode in the series when we talk about the business cycle or boom-bust cycles, how the Bible explains really what a boom-bust cycle is. Even Jesus himself gave an example that economists would do well to take as an example for how to understand what causes boom-bust cycles, and that we can actually understand as Christians that there really truly is no reason that we should have these booms and then these big, large-scale recessions and depressions if governments and people followed biblical economics. But now, let me continue the quote from Dr. Rittner's book, Foundation of Economics, The Christian View. Quote, All production decisions include considerations regarding the concepts sooner and later. Unquote. And so, the, the concept of time is very important to the concept of interest as it relates to money. Because something is more valuable to, to you today if you have access to it, if you can use it for something good today versus if you have to wait in the future. If it's the exact same thing in the future, then it's better for you now than it is if you have to wait a long time for the exact same thing. And so, interest sets a price of money over time. Now, I know it's a little more complicated than that, but that is a basic understanding of how interest functions on money. It is the price of money over time. And now, another quote from Dr. Rittner's book, on chapter 8 about interest, quote, because investors, like all people, value present money more highly than the same amount of money in the future, they require a positive premium for supplying money in the present in exchange for money in the future, 
Unquote. So let's just think about how that works by giving some personal example. Which would you prefer? Let's say that you're getting $10,000. You have a choice between getting $10,000 right now all at once or getting $200 each year for a period of 50 years. So what is worth more to you? What has more utility to you? $10,000 all at once right now or $200 each year. Each year you have to wait and you get a measly $200, but over 50 years you will have eventually received $10,000. It shouldn't take a lot of thought for you to realize that $10,000 is worth more to you right now than it would to wait long into the future or to spread it out over a long period of time where $200 doesn't go as far for you economically over a period of 50 years, $200 each year, than what you could actually do with $10,000 right now. So the same amount of money has more value to you now than in the future. Imagine if you were investing in a business. What would be more valuable to you to start a business? $10,000 right now that you can use to invest in capital equipment, machinery, or employees who can do some work for you to get your business off the ground, or trying to use small amounts of capital investment like that $200 over 50 years. What would be more likely to get that business off the ground? One big heaping pile of $10,000 all in one shot or $200 trickling in every year over 50 years? What about if you were to buy a nice used car? What would be worth more to you for getting that car? Would it be $10,000 right now? Or would it be $200 each year over 50 years? I mean, think about it. Come on. It's the same amount of money, but why would $10,000 right now be better for you to buy a car that you might need than $200 each year for 50 years? And in my experience, I have bought used cars. I've never bought a brand new car. I've never financed a car that way. I don't like to have to make monthly payments on a car if I can help it. And so saving up some money and buying a used car that's low enough price that I can get away with paying for it with cash. Now, what happens if I bring a lump of cash to the dealer? The dealer will list a price for the car in advertisements on car shopping websites. And then if there's a car that I like, I can go to the dealer and I can negotiate because the dealer has the same experience when it comes to money now versus money in the future. And so would the dealer prefer $200 each year for 50 years? Or would the dealer want $10,000 or even $9,000? Would maybe $9,000 right now would be worth more to the dealer than a total of $10,000 over 20 years? And so I can negotiate the dealer down if I bring a lump sum of cash. And so money right now is worth more than money in the future because it's accessible And the more money you have right now, the more you can negotiate down prices because of that price of money over time. Now, if I were to come to that same dealer and try to negotiate down the price of a car, but tell them that I was going to finance it and pay interest on it, the dealer might laugh and say, sorry, you know, you don't have the negotiating power if you're going to finance this car. You got to pay the price I advertised for it because it's easier for you to pay $100 a month 
over whatever number of years it would take to pay off that principal plus a lot of interest. And so money right now, as I said, is worth more money in the future. And so if you save up money, that means that you can avoid having to pay a lot of interest and you have a lot more capital and a lot more negotiating power. And so that is how interest is the premium of money over time. Now, for the sake of this question about $10,000 right now worth more to you than $200 each year over 50 years, let's forget the idea that you could blow it all like the prodigal son in the parable that Jesus told who spent all his money, his inheritance on riotous living and then had to eat the husks with the swine. So let's just forget that idea for a moment and think about what the prudent person could do with the money. So there is more value for the prudent person in money now for investments or even charity, what have you. There's more value for the prudent in money now over the same exact amount of money in the future or stretched out over time. And so that is how we understand how interest is a function, a natural function in the market. Interest is a lot like rent. Interest is a price on the market. Just like the price of any good or service, interest is the price of money over time. And so we need to keep that in mind if we understand that interest is the price of money, then when it comes to policies and interfering with prices, as we'll talk about a little later in this episode, fiddling with prices, if you have someone like a government getting in the way and trying to fix prices on various goods and services, we understand that that can have some nasty effects on the market. And so if we understand interest as a price, then maybe we would understand more about what's wrong with our current banking system. So we answered the question, what is interest? It's like rent and it's the price of money over time. Now let's answer the question, what would normally determine the rate of interest? So as we understand that interest rates coordinate production over time. And Nobel Prize winning economist Frederick A. Hayek explained this. Now, we pay interest on funds that are loaned. And think about even when you open a savings account in a bank, in a sense, technically, you are loaning some of your money, your savings to the bank for the bank to loan out to other people or to to businesses to borrow large sums of money. Some of your savings can go toward that. Now let's, you know, we talked about fractional reserve banking and full reserve banking in a previous episode, but let's just forget about those distinctions. When you open a savings account, the bank pays you interest because you're loaning money to the bank. You're loaning your savings. And so properly interest rates come from savings. The smaller the savings that someone has, the more likely access to money is needed, and the higher the interest rate that's needed on a smaller amount of loanable funds. So let's just take, for example, let's say that you're not a very wealthy person, but you happen to have, by scrimping and saving, you have $1,000 that you're saving for a rainy day. And you feel that there is a strong likelihood that you could at any moment have to dip into this $1,000 savings. Now, let's say someone, some venture capitalist (laughs) comes to you 
and wants to rent your thousand dollars, wants to borrow your thousand dollars. Now, you know, are do you think you're going to le- lend out that thousand dollars to a venture capitalist for one percent interest rate? No, the, the, those meager savings that you have are worth a lot more to you because at any moment you might need to tap into that. So let's say you might be willing to lend that out if you were to charge, say, 20% interest. So every month, that venture capitalist, if, if he or she can do it, will pay you 20% for the privilege of borrowing that $1,000. Now, you might calculate the risk and reward because you, you stand to make a lot of money depending on how long that venture capitalist borrows your, your meager $1,000. I know it's a, it's a silly illustration, but the point I'm trying to make is that the lower the savings that's available, the higher the rate of interest needed for the the risk and reward. The reward must be high because the risk is high. But now, for example, let's say you were rather quite wealthy. You were a millionaire. You have lots of streams of passive income and active income, and you have a bank account that is earning interest, and and you have, say, $500,000 of money that's just sitting there, just collecting interest, and you don't feel any pressing need. You have a lot of other capital, a lot of other savings that is actively being used. You have more than one account with lots of money in it. And so one account that has your $500,000, which it's almost like it's burning a hole in your wallet. You don't know what else to do with it, but you think of the businesses you might be able to start if you just earned a little more money. And so since that $500,000 is not immediately needed, there's, there's not a whole lot of risk in you lending it out, then you might have the ability factoring in the idea that you can earn some money over time and if you lend out more of it, you earn more money by lending out a lot of it and earning the interest on how much you lent out. And so if you can lend out a lot of your $500,000, you could likely compete with other lenders by lending it out at a lower interest rate. So the risk of there being a problem with not paying you some of that money you consider worth it for the reward of earning a little bit of interest, but on a lot of money, so that that interest adds up to a lot of money back to you. And so the smaller the savings, the more likely access to money is needed, and the higher the interest rate on that smaller amount of loanable funds. But the more savings there is, the more that can be lent out. And the more loanable funds that are available, the lower the interest rate is needed because access to those funds is not as vital. So a little bit of savings demands a higher rate of interest for borrowing. The higher the amount of savings, the lower the interest rate is needed. So I hope that makes a little bit of sense as to what would normally determine the rate of interest. The more people save, the more there is to loan out. And that's how an economy would actually work in a free market. As people actually underconsume to build up savings, then the stock of the amount of money that's available to loan out increases and forces down interest rates. But then when people spend more money rather than save it, they consume more in the, fu- in the present rather than saving up for the future, the amount of savings reduces, which would then push up interest rates. So I hope that makes a little bit of sense for what should normally determine the rate of interest. The price of money over time, as what interest is, is determined by how much savings there is 
in the economy. And so savings is a good thing for future investment. Now, a lot of modern economists would tell you that's not how things work, and they would be quick to demean savings as something that deprives people of money. Well, yeah, sure, when you save more money now rather than spend it on consumer goods, sure, there might be fewer people earning money in jobs, lower salaries paying for jobs, and fewer number of jobs in certain sectors of the economy right now, but those savings build money that can be lent out or invested in capital equipment that can grow thriving businesses. And so savings helps businesses in the future rather than spending funny money right now that can lead to ventures that are not profitable and go bankrupt. And so that was the answer to the question, what would normally determine the rate of interest? Now, let's talk about one obvious question as we get to what the Bible says about interest. Is it immoral to charge interest on money? Well, I hope as we have discussed things right now, naturally you might say, of course not. I mean, you made the comparison between $50,000 as cash and an apartment worth $50,000 and renting an apartment and renting money worth the same amount should be considered fair. So what does the Bible say? Is it immoral? Is it evil or wrong to charge interest on money? Well, there are verses in the Bible that seem to condemn interest or usury, as some translations call it. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and let's look at verses 19 through 20. And God is speaking to the Israelites, quote, Thou shalt not lend upon usury to thy brother, usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury. Unto a stranger thou mayest lend upon usury, but unto thy brother thou shalt not lend upon usury, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all that thou settest thine hand to in the land whither thou goest to possess it." Unquote. And so, when God called the Israelites out of Egypt and promised to make them a nation, they were a nation, the descendants of Israel or Jacob, they were all, as a nation, considered by God one family. And so, Israel was a nation of one family. And so, as brothers and sisters, as family members, God commanded them not to charge each other interest or usury on money or things. Now, God did miraculously provide for Israel that if they kept his law, he would make the weather good for their crops and livestock. And if they broke the law, God would bring famines and send them into captivity. And so God supernaturally controlled factors of production so that if they obeyed the law, they would get supernatural blessings. And so we do have to understand that, you know, the United States or any country today is not a covenant nation. The United States is not covenant Israel or Israel in any sense of the word. And so we don't have those direct blessings from God that he would control the weather if we do the right thing. But we do need to take a principle from what God is saying to the Israelites here. He does not want them to charge each other interest because they are family. But in Deuteronomy 23.20, God says that they may lend and charge interest or usury to a stranger or to a foreigner. And that is actually a good thing, and that's actually a principle that we should take to heart. So, we're not Israel, we're not a covenant nation, but we should take the principle that we should not be lenders of interest to family members. You know, as family, we should treat each other differently than we would business partners and borrowers. And so, say if a father 
lends money to his son or daughter and expects the son or daughter to pay back the principal with interest, then, as Proverbs 22 verse 7 says, the rich ruleth over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. And so, the Bible compares servants with sons and servants with friends and servants with family. So, in good principle from the Bible, we should not treat family as borrowers and lend them money and charge interest because that can strain our family relationships. It takes away that family bond. And so, I think that's the principle that God wanted the Israelites to have, always to think of each other as family and not as business partners or servants or borrowers. So, it is best not to charge interest to family according to biblical principles, but interest according to the Bible is perfectly fine to charge to strangers. In fact, it's actually a blessing according to the law to Israel to be in a position to charge interest. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 12. Quote, The Lord Yahweh shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven, to give the rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow." So, God actually considered it a blessing to Israelites if they were to acquire wealth and acquire capital that they could lend out and charge interest on. That was a position of blessing. Now, it mentions here the supernatural provisions if they were to follow the law, but nevertheless, God considers it blessing if you save, if you accumulate wealth, and that you can use that wealth and put it to good use to lend out to foreigners, to strangers, not to family, but to other people to make good use of your wealth. That is a sign of blessing. It is not a sign of evil. So, don't charge interest to your family, according to biblical principle, but you, are, you can charge it to strangers. And lending out money and charging interest is a sign of blessing and doing something good with your money. And so, it is perfectly okay to charge interest on money in the right circumstances and to the right people. Now, the final question that I would like to get to on this episode about interest is, should a banking monopoly or the government be in charge of setting interest rates? So, we saw that interest is the price of lending money over time. Remember, I emphasize the word price. If we understand that interest is a price on the market and the rate of interest is determined by how much savings there is to lend out. Remember that the lower the savings, necessarily the higher the rate of interest. And conversely, the more savings there is, the lower the interest rate can be in the market. So, interest is a price that is based on the supply of available funds and the demand for borrowing funds. So, what happens when the government sets prices? If the government sets prices too low, then often we have artificially stimulated demand and supply shocks. There might be more demand for that good or service if the government forces the price too low and the supply is not able to meet that artificially created or stimulated demand. And now what happens when the government sets the price of something higher than would naturally be on the market? You end up with an oversupply of that good or service and an artificially suppressed demand. So, imagine shelves full of a product, but that supply cannot be liquidated because the supplier is forbidden by the government from lowering the prices to get people to part with their money and buy that good or service. And so, when the government 
sets prices either too low or too high, you end up with problems. You end up with an interference in market equilibrium. I was reading an article from the Foundation for Economic Education by a D.T. Armentano, and this article is called The Economics of of price fixing and it's you know it's available from the fee.org website i will provide a link to this article in the show notes but the article was originally written but made digitally available today it was originally written on june 1st 1967 but it definitely keeps its value over time <laughs> So from the article, The Economics of Price Fixing, quote, The most important function of a free price, a price not fixed or regulated by the state, is its ability to serve as an indication of the relative scarcity of a commodity and automatically ration that scarce commodity to the highest demander. As long as the price of an article is allowed to fluctuate and match the supply with demand, there will neither be surpluses nor shortages, i.e., the market will be cleared at some equilibrium price, unquote. So, remember, any form of money is a good on the market like any other good. And I emphasize this in previous episodes of this series. Money is a good on the market. Money is not like ambrosia from the gods. Now, I believe, as I said before, God created money. God created gold and silver. And, you know, anything, as I said in uh, Why Can't I Spend Monopoly Money, anything could technically be used as money. But money, money goods have certain properties that make them function the best as money, durability, fungibility, divisibility, a store of value, unit of account, all those kinds of things. If anything has these properties, then it can function as money. And gold and silver and some other metals just happen to have all of these properties. Now, remember, I don't say that that means everyone has to carry around gold and silver coins in their pockets. No, we have technology that allows people to transfer ownership of metals digitally or with paper certificates like currency that's backed by things like gold and silver. There are different ways to have sound money or hard money that is backed by real value, but money Just like all the goods and services in the economy, money is one of them. So as being a good on the market, money is subject to the laws of supply and demand, like any other good on the market. Now let's consider this. Money is virtually half of every transaction. I bet you didn't know that, did you? No, of course you know that. Whenever you buy something, you buy something with money. And when you sell something, you sell it for money. So, except for direct exchanges and barter, that's why I said money is virtually half of every transaction. So, think about this. Let's have a thought experiment, shall we? If most of us would get nervous about the prospects of a cars are, as we've heard proposed by former President Barack Obama, or if we get nervous about the idea of someone centrally planning the prices of, say, bananas or smartphones or internet access or anything else, why should we turn a blind eye to the idea that there are an elite few that already are trying to price fix money? Why would we get up in arms about the government trying to impose confiscatory taxes on gasoline or limit the supply of gasoline? Remember, during the 1970s with the oil shocks, as there were price controls on oil that made it difficult for some people to get oil and you had those long lines of cars having to go through the gas stations and on certain days of the week to get oil because the government imposed 
price fixing on oil, which then meant that they had to ration it. Now, we look at that now with disdain and with angst because it's the government getting in the way of the supply and demand of gasoline. But why then should we trust the government or some central bank, like the Federal Reserve, with setting the price of money, setting the supply of money, and setting the price, the base price, of lending out money? If they can determine the price of money or interest rates unilaterally, why shouldn't we be concerned about that just like we would be concerned with someone setting the price of apples? And we understand the effects of price-fixing apples, but why don't we understand the effects of price-fixing what is virtually half of every transaction, including buying and selling apples? As Christian apologist James White says often that we need to demythologize scholarship. Well, I believe it is time we as Christians get back to the basics of economics as we observe the principles in the Bible and let us demythologize money. Let us demythologize currency. Let us demythologize interest rates and banking and all of economics so that we can see clearly the fraud that is played out every single day. Price fixing anything can lead to deprivation, pain, and suffering. Price fixing money by centrally planning interest rates, leads people to make bad investments and bad borrowing. It leads people to squander resources, to amass debt, and to destroy savings. It suppresses vital necessities that some people have, and on the converse, it can enrich people who aren't earning their keep, who aren't contributing their share to the economy. Now, let's look at some verses in the Bible to see the way we should think about economics and to think about ownership and to think about why prices should not be fixed by someone who has not earned or created what they're controlling prices over. Proverbs 27 and verse 18 says, Whoso keepeth the fig tree shall eat the fruit thereof, so he that waiteth on his master shall be honored. And Second Timothy 2.6, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, quote, The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits, unquote. And so those who create Those who produce are the ones who should be able to determine the price thereof, should be able to control the price thereof. And so a government or a central bank should not be able to control the supply of money when the value of that money is determined by those who actually labor and produce the the utility of the goods and services that money can buy or sell. And so, also, a government or a central bank should not be able to price fix money or determine the rate of interest. What determines the rate of interest on a true market economy is the amount of savings in the economy. As people consume less now and save more, that savings is what determines the rate of interest. It should not be determined by a government or central bank, because if a government or a central bank makes interest too low, you end up with malinvestments. If the government then sets interest too high over what would be the market clearing price of money loaned out over time, according to the capital stock that people have saved up, you end up suppressing businesses that otherwise would be started in a free economy. And so, if you don't like people setting the price of apples, Don't think that it should be okay for anyone to be able to set the price of money. And when you have 
price fixing, you can end up with what we see in Micah chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Price fixing results in improper imbalances in the economy. Quote, Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is abominable? Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? For the rich men thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. My friends, let's not be deceived by the economists today who believe that there needs to be some central authority setting the amount of money in the economy at a whim or forcing down the rate of interest because the price of money tells us something about how much money is available to lend out. And with a $24 trillion national debt and climbing, with over $100 trillion or even more of unfunded liabilities of promises by politicians, that tells us something when we have people who are considered smarter than everyone else, when we have elites who are bestowed the authority to be able to control portions of the economy and money and interest. We should realize the distortions that this causes. We should realize that this kind of setup ultimately causes these bad investments that later lead to crashes and depressions and recessions. And may I say that if we follow the Bible, the economics that the Bible teaches us about proper weights and measures, and that no one should be able to be deceitful in weights and measures and the balances, and that there's treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, but scant measure in the house of the poor because of deceit, not from honest gain in the marketplace, but because of deceit to amass wealth for a privileged few that are connected to government authorities and a banking system that controls money and forces people to use a money and a currency that they can produce at a whim and devalue and then force interest rates down that communicates bad signals, incorrect signals about the price of money and how much capital there really is to lend out that causes cycles. And the next episode in this series, I'm going to talk about what is the cause of nationwide or economy-wide recessions and depressions. Is it some natural function of the free market and the irrational activities of people in the market at large? Or is it caused by these same people who falsify the balances by deceit? And just like with the price of money interest, when you fiddle with that, that is one key factor in why we end up with these large recessions and depressions. But who gets blamed? Well, if we understood the Bible, we would know who would be to blame. But with the new economics, we often blame the people who are doing the right things in the economy while bestowing more and more power to create imbalances to the elites who can bewitch us and continue to falsify the balances by deceit. So stay tuned. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 